everyone. Hey friends, welcome back. Or thanks for joining us if you're new here. Yes, thank you. This is episode 35. Holy bananas. So we're just going to jump right in. Yeah, uh, if you've listened to the last episode, you know that this is... We're doing this in the same day. Yeah, we're... It's hello. 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 Again. Hi. Again. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to get into my murder story. Yeah. So... This one is actually a pretty interesting one. Um, this is the murder of Al Bramlett. Okay. And my source is mayhaminthedesert.com slash Bramlett. Um, so the service industry in Las Vegas consisted of housekeepers, waiters, and table dealers. And they are what fueled the economy of Las Vegas since the first resort casinos started opening up in the Strip in about like 1946. Mm-hmm. It was during this time that a man named Al Bramlett, who was a 29-year-old bartender and business agent for the Culinary Union local in Los Angeles, that he made his way out to Las Vegas to organize the growing legion of cooks, waiters, and bartenders working in the casino industry. So Al had always hustled for a better life ever since he abandoned his life as a farm boy in the Midwest to join the Navy during World War II. Um, so... Al made traction in his goal to transform the service employees laboring in kitchens and restaurants across Las Vegas into a force that he could meet casino owners on an equal footing. So by 1953, Al had been elected head of the Las Vegas local 226 of the Culinary Union. The union boss early on earned a reputation for tough tactics on behalf of his members, When a hotel was late making payroll in 1956, Al obtained a right of garnishment and had sheriff's deputies impound the casino's cash and payroll was made within 40 minutes of the seizure. He, it was his goal as a union leader Mm -hmm. to make sure his people were taken care of. Right, totally. And he did some things that, a lot of these casinos were owned by some big mobsters back in those days. Yeah, we remember Sam Giancana. uh Uh-huh, so he had to do some tough things to make sure his people were taken care of. Right, yeah, sometimes, you know, the boss man's got to take the hit. Yep. He's got a good boss man. Mm -hmm. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) Usually in these stories, they aren't. (laughs) No. So at the same time, Al increased the culinary union's power. He also took steps to ensure his control over the union would remain undisturbed. He limited eligibility in elections for the head positions in the union, secretary, treasurer, to only include members of the executive committee, each of which had been handpicked by Al. In fact, Al faced only one genuinely contested election for secretary, treasurer, in 1963, when Luther Shue, an Al appointee to union job dispatcher, made an attempt to unseat his former patron. Not only did Shue lose the election, he was also promptly forced out of his position as job dispatcher by Al for the best interest of the union. Oh, of course. Yeah, you don't try to dethrone him. No. So... As the local 226 union was under Al's leadership and it continued to grow, the union did not shy away from aggressive tactics when necessary to pursue their members' interests. Among the more memorable of these were um, was the massive strike led by the Culinary Union in March of 1976. This saw thousands of cooks, waiters, and dishwashers walk off their jobs and refuse to return until the heads of major strip casinos 
agreed to increase their wages. Strip casinos went dark as restaurants and shows temporarily closed. It's kind of like so, what's going on right now. Yeah, but this is to... Specific to Las Vegas casinos. Yeah. Gotcha. So the strike even had some violence. Fights broke out along the picket lines and police arrested dozens of union members during the two-week-long strike. Often when strikers blocking the roads caused traffic to slow or to stop on the strip. Throughout almost every day of the ordeal, Al slowly rolled by the picket lines in his silver Cadillac bearing a giant grin at the show of muscle from the organization he had been so instrumental in building. He was happy that this was going on. Right. So the Nevada Resort Association, the trade group representing the holdout casino owners, took out advertisements in the local papers trying to sway public opinion against the union, arguing union negotiators were refusing to bargain in good faith. But the union held strong, with 22,000 members drawing attention to what they argued were reasonable demands of the casino owners. Amidst the back and forth between labor and management to win the battle for the public's heart and mind, another unexpected labor action broke out. Housekeepers seeking to draw attention to their efforts to become part of the union conducted a strike at several motels. The Nevada Resort Association ultimately caved and agreed to almost all of the culinary union's demands as part of a four-year contract. Culinary's strike was a tough but legal negotiating tactic that won union members substantial concessions from the casino's owners. But Al didn't always rely on legal methods of negotiation when pursuing the union's interests. The culinary union had lots of picketing outside the several off-strip gourmet restaurants and taverns in an effort to organize their employees. In some cases, such as with the high-end restaurant, the Alpine Village Inn, the union had been picketing for almost 20 years. Holy cow. The frustration by the union leaders' leadership over the inability to bring these restaurants into their fold was compounded when employees at several culinary restaurants voted to decertify the union or to form independent bargaining unions, weakening culinary's power. The first sign these tensions would soon turn into violence was in September of 1975, when a small but powerful bomb detonated in an employee locker behind the Alpine Village Inn. Police later discovered another bundle of high explosives that failed to detonate attached to the restaurant's air conditioning unit, along with two smoke canisters. Investigators said that it looked like the second bomb was intended to send smoke through the shattered air ducts and into the dining area. Only three months later, the Alpine Village Inn was struck again. Mind you... They're being attacked because they refuse to join the union. Right. So just keep that in mind. So on the night of December 20th, 1975, as over 300 patrons and 75 staff occupied the building, a bomb tore the roof off of the restaurant near the kitchen, leaving a hole over two feet in diameter. 30 seconds later, a second bomb ignited on the roof, sending more debris into the kitchen area. The bomb caused a fire to break out. Nevertheless, everyone inside the restaurant was able to make an orderly exit without injury. The lack of loss of life was miraculous. Investigators determined that one of the two bombs had nearly ruptured a gas line, which would have instantly demolished a building into rubble. Las Vegas did not have long to recover. The next month, another sudden explosion happened about a mile west of downtown Vegas on January 12, 1976, 
The target of this blast was David's Place, a gourmet restaurant that had long resisted efforts of unionization. Officers having coffee a few blocks away thought that the sound of the blast was their waitress dropping a pile of dishes. When the officers realized what the sound was, they drove to the scene of the bombing where they encountered thick white smoke billowing across Charleston Boulevard. In fact, the bomb was so powerful it sent a light fixture at a nearby bank careening to the floor and shattered windows in half a dozen buildings. Several people at a residential facility for the elderly next door to to David's place were injured by flying glass. Police investigators determined that the blast had been caused by high explosives left at the rear of the gutted restaurant. No suspects were arrested in connection with the bombings. A spokesman for the culinary union denied any involvement with the blast and offered the organization support for the investigation. The owner of David's Place rebuilt his restaurant and the union pickets returned after the grand reopening. So things remained quiet for the next year. On the night of January 24, 1977, the culprits behind the previous bombings engaged in a dangerous escalation. Raymond Kraber, a security guard patrolling the parking lot outside of the Village Pub, another non-union restaurant located a few blocks east of the Strip, noticed a puddle of gasoline beneath a Jeep parked near the building. Upon closer inspection... The security guard saw that there was a steady drip of gas coming from beneath the vehicle. His suspicions aroused and the guard called the police. The dispatcher assumed that this was a call for a routine gas wash and the fire department was dispatched to hose the down the area. But the responding firefighters inspected the jeep and noticed a barrel with tubing connected to it in the rear of the vehicle and realized that this was no routine call. The bomb squad was called to the scene and determined they were dealing with a sophisticated device. The barrel in the rear of the Jeep contained about 350 pounds of gasoline, with a slow drip from the barrel fed via a tube, a tube allowing it to saturate the interior of the vehicle and the ground beneath to create the conditions for rapid ignition. The unlocked doors of the Jeep had been rigged to a flash detonator so that the first unsuspecting person to open the door would trigger a massive explosion. As the bomb squad and the firefighters worked to defuse the bomb at the village pub, a call came in from another guard working security at the non-union restaurant Starboard Track after spotting a suspicious Jeep in the parking lot with gasoline dripping from the undercarriage. Oh, that's good. Uh-huh. So first responders arriving at Starboard Tech um, determined that they were dealing with a device identical to the one left outside the village pub. The only injury caused by the improvised explosive devices was to Fire Marshal Tom Huddleston, who suffered burns when the ignition device he was removing from the Jeep went off in his hands and set his shirt on fire. The fire marshal likely would not have survived had the device detonated a few moments earlier while being removed from the Jeep. Huddleston later commented, I lost a good shirt, but it makes you appreciate the small things in life. So, the bombings terrorizing non-union restaurants across Las Vegas had allegedly been ordered by R. Al as an extra-legal means of increasing his union's bargaining power. So, Tom and Grambly Hanley, a father-son hitman duo, Mm -hmm. were hired to place the bombs. 
When Al first hired them to carry out the bombings, Grambly Hanley used a connection at a local mining company to purchase several hundred pounds of high explosives under the table. Oh. So Alan had paid the Hanleys tens of thousands of dollars for the bombings from the union fund with the payments made to Oasis Air Conditioning, (laughs) a front company run by Tom Hanley. The relationships between the Hanleys and Al had run along smoothly until the failed twin bombings at the village pub and starboard tech. Al had agreed to pay a total of 17000 for the two bombings. 7000 was for up front, and the rest was due upon the completion of the job. But after both of the bombs obviously failed to go off, um, Al refused to pay the remaining 10000 I wouldn't either. My bombs didn't go off. Right. So... <laughs> This is where we get into the juice. Um, so the Hanleys were not one to be stiffed on money that they felt was owed. From their perspective, they had taken the risk to build and place the bombs. It wasn't their fault both security guards decided to call the cops instead of inspecting further and then triggering the devices. It would set a bad example in their line of work to allow a contract to go unpaid. But while the Hanleys wanted to settle the score with Al, they also wanted to avoid unnecessary risk to their safety. It was widely known that Al always carried a three fifty seven revolver on him in case one of his many enemies tried to do him harm. It would be preferable to deal with Al without worrying about him shooting back, and the Hanleys had a plan to confront the Union boss at a place they knew he would be unarmed. So Al flew to McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas on return from a trip to Reno on union business on the afternoon of February 24th of 1977. The Hanleys knew that Al would be unarmed upon returning from his flight back to Vegas. Um, A spate of skyjackings in the early 70s have resulted in some of the first uniform bans on weapons aboard aircrafts. Al got off his plane before 4.30 p.m., and called his daughter from a payphone to tell her he would be home in about 30 minutes before making his way through the terminal to the airport exits. Al was jarred from his present concerns when he spotted two familiar faces waiting for him in the crowd. The Hanleys gave Al a wave and approached. Al's heart sank as the reality set in that he had nowhere to run. He entertained hope that he would be able to sort things out with his former associates. Let's go for a ride, Al, Tom Hanley said. Mm-hmm. That's always a good uh-huh. good sentence to hear. Let's go for a ride. Mm-hmm. So Al walked with the Hanleys out of the airport and into a nearby parking garage. The trio made their way to a van that was occupied by a fourth member, Clem Vaughn, another former associate of Hanley's from his days running the Sheet Metal Workers Union. Al was handcuffed and gagged in the back of the van before the vehicle exited the parking garage. The van took a few turns before finding its way to Blue Diamond Road. From there, it started to get dark, and they made their way into the desert. Uh Uh-oh. You definitely don't want to take a ride into the desert. Nope. That's not (laughs) where you want to go. So once they were outside the Vegas city limits, the Hanleys made a stop at an isolated payphone. Al was ordered to get out of the van and was instructed to call an executive he knew at the Desert Inn Casino to demand $10,000 for a loan and gave instructions for the money to be delivered to the Horseshoe Casino in downtown Vegas, 
which was owned by notorious gangster and gambler Benny Binion. Al complied upon being assured by his kidnappers that he would be released upon paying the balance owed for the bombings. The Desert Inn executive hurried to get the money ready, but no one ever arrived at Binion's Horseshoe Casino when scheduled to pick up the loan. It is uncertain whether the Hanleys ever picked up the 10000 from the Horseshoe, since they were known to perform some of Benny Binion's more unsavory work around Vegas. But what is known is that the Hanleys did not keep their promise to release Al. Uh-oh. He was placed back in the rear of the van, and the four men continued into the now dark desert. The van made its final stop down a bumpy, isolated desert road near Mount Potosi. Al was taken from the back of the vehicle, and his restraints were removed. Tom Hanley exited the vehicle and took out a flask of whiskey. After taking a swig, he asked, You want some, Al? Um, I think I could use a drink, Al replied. He accepted the flask and had a sip as Tom Hanley took a few steps in the opposite direction. Hanley then pulled a small caliber revolver from his pocket and fired a single shot into the back of Al's head. Hanley then emptied the rest of the revolver into Al before the other men dragged the body a few yards away into a waiting shallow grave, hastily covering the corpse with rocks and debris. The disappearance of Al from the airport quickly became national news. It had been less than two years since another powerful union boss had suddenly gone missing without a trace. But unlike Jimmy Hoffa, which I guess was the other one, the mystery surrounding Al would not last long. A couple hiking a trail near Mount Potosi in the morning of um, March 18, 1977, saw something unusual beneath a pile of rocks. Upon removing a few of the rocks, the couple discovered the body of Al. Police investigators arrived and secured what evidence they could from the murder scene, but Al's killers had been careful to avoid leaving potential clues, and the elements had already limited the amount of evidence that could be gained from Al's corpse. The police were at a dead end as far as suspects in the murder until they received an unlikely break. An anonymous tipster contacted the police in the weeks after Al went missing. The tipster ultimately became a confidential informant that revealed crucial details of the crime to investigators. The informant could offer such insights because he was the fourth man present the night of Al slaying. Oh. Clem Vaughn, the one that was driving. Yeah, all right, Clemmy. So, though the Hanleys skipped town after murdering Al, they were eventually arrested for the killing. The Hanleys ended up cutting a deal with federal prosecutors that had been investigating the leadership of the local 226, including their role in the restaurant bombings of 1975 and 1977. In exchange for the Hanleys pleading guilty to the Al murder, prosecutors agreed to allow the Hanleys to serve their life sentences for the crime at a federal prison in San Diego rather than Nevada State Prison in Carson Cities, where the hitmen feared for their lives. So, if you learned anything out of this... Um, pay your hitman. Yeah. <laughs> or you're going to end up in the desert. <laughs> or just don't do shitty things and try to bomb people. That, more so. More so of that. than That's crazy. I didn't know that, like, the union was, like, a freaking mob. I didn't either. <laughs> Literally did not know. I feel like everything has got some underlying... Oh, yeah. Fuck up Something, yeah. Fuckery going on. It's crazy, this world. Okay. So, in the spirit of moving along... <laughs> um... 
First, we have to admit <laughs> a mistake. Okay, so in our defense, whenever we first started this podcast, the very first episode we recorded ever, yes, Brittany covered the old Alton Bridge, a.k.a. Goatman's Bridge, okay? And we ended up not doing it, and we completely forgot because she used a lot of sources from Reddit, and we were scared we were going to get sued, right? That yeah, why? that's why this version of the story is very short. Okay, <laughs> so... We put out a video to our patrons where we went and visited the mm-hmm. Goatman's Bridge. Yes, because we're like, it's local to where I yeah. live anyway. So it's so, in Denton, Texas. Yeah, and so we were like, well, this will be a, a good first kind of like paranormal, go check it out. Yeah. Yeah, and then on the video, <laughs> we're like, yeah, guys, go check out episode, episode number, number one. one. <laughs> Completely and forgetting then, that we didn't do that It's one. never been released. Like, we've never done this story which i feel like is so funny because in my head that's the first episode we did yes i think because we put so much effort into the even though like the quality was kind of shitty because we had bad microphones back then but like we put so much like thought and like actual (laughs) like preparation into it i think that's why it just stuck out so so much. much yeah and she did like it was supposed to be the old alton bridge and then she did the gardetto fella what was his name? I always think of Gardetto's. It was the funny name. The you remember? I I literally don't. I don't remember. It was anything. some like he was some. I don't killer. He killed. He people. killed. He was a murderer, a like we usually do. <laughs> Anyways, so what we did is we went to this place, and the whole reason I wanted to bring my laptop in here and show you this picture is because now that we've actually been to this place, this picture is extremely creepy. Oh, great, because it was kind of creepy when we went, and if you want to check that video out, you can join our Patreon. It's only $5 a month, and it really helps us out, and it's at patreon.com slash literally disturbed, and if you want, you can go onto our Instagram at literally disturbed podcast, and then there's like a link tree in the bio, Mm -hmm. and then you click that, and then our Patreon's on there, so you can go see it on there. And that helps us keep doing things. Keep doing things, because, you know, we're poor. We are. Anyways. Um, Anyways, so... So, yeah, we went to this bridge, and we had already, of course, in our head thought we did this story. So, we were all like, yeah, guys, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's kind of silly now. and It's funny. It's though. funny, but it's like, that is so us. That is so an us thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, Better late than never. I guess. So, here we are. We're doing it now on episode 35, not episode one. Um, First, let me pull up this picture, because I had to close it since I was getting distracted in your story. Yeah, she was looking up RVs while I was doing my story, and then I literally had to get on to her. And it was a bomb? What happened? I was like, Brittany, I've been talking about bombs this whole time. I cut, We're going to cut that part out, but just uh, yeah. know that that happened. Just know that it did. Okay. We have seen this picture. Katie, you're right. The first time yeah. that we did this episode. But before- oh, the first time we did this episode. <laughs> yeah, there looks like a, like a ton of orbs, and it looks like someone's smoking. Smoking or like I don't know. It's like mist, but it could be somebody smoking. It could be, but what the hell? And they could be a bunch of bugs. I don't know. I'm a skeptic when it comes to orb photos. I am too. Like legit, I am. I am too. I am a part of this group called like paranormal photo, some shit like that, and it's where people are like, "This is me brushing my teeth. What do you see in the picture?" 
or just some like stupid the stuff. videos like on the ring camera or they'll have a video like a video camera with a bug flying yes. up in it and it's like dude it's very obviously a and bug. like you can see it, like it'll be like crawling and it's like look this orb's like walking around my living room like that's a bug <laughs> and you can see its little legs on your camera like you need I it really like those kind of posts really frustrate me because I am a person who is looking for for evidence of this kind of stuff yeah. that happens. And but I am a skeptic inside too. I'm not gonna just take every picture to be what it is. Yeah, Use your common fucking haunted. sense. Yeah, but when you post, like literally there was one and I feel like I've talked about this before, but there was a picture of a girl and she was literally in her nasty ass bathroom with fucking toothpaste all over her mirror, taking a selfie. And you can tell that she literally had just taken a big old puff. Like, it was probably like a vape. Like, she probably just exhaled and whatever. And it was just smoke in the background. And she's like, what is this, guys? What could it be? People. This is why we can't have nice things. Right? Because you're idiots. Okay, let's get into the goat man's bridge. Yeah, this is going to be super quick because I took out a lot of the stories. But uh, my link or my sources are discoveredenton.com, Vex Ghost Hunters, Dallas Observer, Wikipedia, and Texas Hill Country. Okay. It's a lot of resources for such a small story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So for those of you who don't know, the Old Alton Bridge, also known as the Goatman's Bridge, is a historic bridge in Denton County. Okay. It was basically basically like... The cusp of Denton. Okay. When, the Denton County when it was like it's where everything kind of started was in that area. Um, And it was built in 1884 by the King Iron Bridge Manufacturing Company. It originally carried horses and later automobiles over Hickory Creek at a location that once was a popular ford for crossing cattle. Um, The bridge takes its name from uh, the abandoned community of Alton, which between 1850 and 1856, was the seat of Denton County. The heavily traveled Old Alton Bridge remained in constant use until 2001 when vehicle traffic was moved to an adjacent concrete and steel bridge. Prior to the new bridge, it was necessary for motorists to signal with a car horn before crossing the single lane span, which, now that we've both been on that bridge, we can understand why, because I don't even know how a car can fit on that thing. No. So then they, you know, the new bridge was straightened out. It was a very sharp curve. And this kind of, you know, when you go around that, the regular curve now, it's not that. It's just a little, Mm -hmm. little windy curve. But it also provided, I mean, there's multiple lanes, obviously. They're not going to just put a one lane for a bridge now. Um, So with that, you know, with the vehicle traffic removed from it, now it is a hiking trail and used for equestrian trails. So. Oh, I didn't know the equestrian part. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Um, and it's also obviously a popular location for nature enthusiasts and photographers because if you go, I think there's even, if for those of you who aren't going to be a Patreon person, which is cool, there's actually a little clip of it on our Instagram that you can go and look at, or at least my Instagram. I know it's for sure on mine. I don't know if it's on mine. I don't know. But I have photos um, of the graffiti. Yeah. And I have some photos of one that was of Hitler and we both agreed it was like, it was done very Hitler, well. But it was very it was well Hitler. done. And it was like graffiti spray paint on this side of this bridge. So yeah. it was pre- it's pretty cool. Anyways, um, not cool that it's Hitler, but like art, it was the, artist was, the artist is a very good artist is what I'm trying to say. Now, while we're on this topic of graffiti, though, where that part of the graffiti is, that's cool because it's the underpass of, 
you know, the, the other bridge. Yeah, the one that's actually usable. Right. Now, when you go on to the actual Goatman Bridge, I do not appreciate the graffiti there. And I, when I was redoing this story and I was looking at pictures of the bridge, you know, what did you see when we went there? On the bridge. Friggin' pentagram. And penises and yeah. goat man fucked my, my dad or oh, some yeah. stupid shit like that. And it's just literally graffiti is covering that entire yeah. bridge. It just ruins the historical but the part pictures, of it. The pictures, there's nothing on there. There's no graffiti. It looks like it has been... well. So this has to have been within just like recent... And I'm honestly wondering if it's probably because of the Ghost Hunters episode. And people are just like more aware of it now and... Because when we went yeah. there, there was a bunch of hoodlum kids there, you know. And I wonder if maybe they, like, try to clean it up. Like, because you can clean off spray paint and stuff. So maybe right. they, like, go through and, Every like. Every once in a while. Yeah. And, and then maybe just because of COVID and stuff, they just haven't been out there. That might be why. But I just found just it very. I'm just pulling shit out of my ass. I don't know. I mean, that's logical, though. I just feel like it's. It was so offensive to me. <laughs> yeah. Being in such what is a potentially beautiful little area. And to just have. I mean, I literally brought my 11-year-old, and she's the one who pointed out Goatman fucked my dad thing. So what? that's just cool. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get – so now that we know about the bridge, let's find out the story behind it and how this plays into paranormal and where the hell the Goatman comes from. <laughs> oh, uh, let me rewind just for one little note. Um, it was actually included in July of 1988 – in the National Register of Historic Places. So it's now a historical land or like landmark. Oh, so you would think they would keep it You clean. would think they would. Anyways. Yes. But again, the COVID theory sounds about right. Like that makes more sense to me, especially because it seems like it's been within recent years. So yeah. that, would, that would make sense. Anyway, so locally, again, the bridge is known as Goatman's Bridge. And it's said to be haunted by a half man, half goat figure called Goatman. The belief is based on a leg- legend of a black goat farmer named Oscar Washburn, who is said to have moved his family to a residence just north of the bridge. A few years later, Washburn, having become known as a dependable and honest businessman and dubbed the, quote, goat man by locals, displayed a sign on Altman, um, on Alton Bridge reading this way to the goat man. But the success of a black man, mind you, this is in the 1800s, mm-hmm. you know. I'm sorry, no, that's wrong. This is 1938. So, you know... Having a successful black man in this time frame was, we know that that time frame and what was going on and. Yeah. What that wasn't so, okay to them. So here comes our ghost writers is what I think they are. The clans, the KKK comes in and they were also in the local government, which surprise, surprise. They basically came across the bridge, kidnapped Washburn from his family they hung a noose on the old Alton Bridge and after securing it around his neck, threw him over the side. When they looked down to see if he had died, the noose was empty. In a panic, they returned to his family home and slaughtered his wife and children. What the fuck? Yeah. Locals warn that if you cross the bridge at night without headlights, again, I don't know why you would, I don't even know how you would be able to cross that bridge now in a car. You can't. I mean, remember it was all blocked yeah, was off all, by gates and stuff. Yeah, I don't think that that's possible anymore. Maybe, no, I don't think so. Um, so you can't do that, but apparently people have. And they say that you will be met at the other side by the goat man. And ghostly figures and strange lights are said to appear in the surrounding woods as well as reports of visitors being touched, grabbed, and having rocks thrown at them. 
So a similar tale to Washburn's predates the building of the bridge in which a group of cowboys lynched a goat herder named Jack Kendall. Supposedly, this was near the location of the bridge, and the er, the legend goes that Kendall's body was reanimated through the power of voodoo. Um, It ripped off the head of a nearby goat and then replaced his head with the goats as the astonished cowboys watched in horror. Whether it was Washburn, Washburn or Kendall, I mean, I, I feel like Washburn was the more, like, commonly accepted theory as to mm-hmm. this what, story or whatever. Um, there are reports of abandoned cars with no sign of their occupants, vehicles that have broken down or car doors locking and unlocking of its own accord, and some people have heard hoofbeats around the bridge. Let's pause for just a moment while I make that comment, because do you remember how before we went out there together, I told you I was on a delivery that literally was just like six minutes away, and I was like, oh, I got to go check it out real quick. Mm-hmm. So remember how I told you when I went there how my car alarm kept going off the whole time? Oh, yeah. That's freaking weird. I'm not kidding you guys. It probably went off like six times while I was there checking stuff out. It was kind of freaky. And finally, I just didn't lock my car back, so it would stop going off. <laughs> That is freaky. It was trying to keep you from it going over there. It's like, listen, you're you need all to leave. alone out here. Like, and... somebody was trying to get you to go away. Yeah. And I didn't. I mean, I didn't stay very long. I went and checked out the bridge and looked around, and then I was being, like, devoured by mosquitoes, and I was wearing shorts. So, hashtag Texas problems. Anyways, so one more of the disturbing variations of the bridge experiences tells of a man waiting on the other side of the bridge with a goat head under each arm. Some people have seen a half man, half goat figure, similar to a satyr, and some people <laughs> say that it they bears the resemblance to the tale Donkey Lady Bridge or La Llorona. Okay. Donkey so Lady Bridge. I've never heard of Donkey Lady Bridge, <laughs> but Okay. So the KKK would often wait for African-Americans and women to pass by and attack them in the dead of night. Another thing that was said. Um, The first reports of supernatural encounters on the bridge were in 1938, and many are recorded in the episode. Some people have claimed to see the figure of Goatman with glowing eyes and horns. Others have heard a voice telling them to get off the bridge or have been struck with feelings of violence while visiting the site. And if you watch Ghost Hunters, apparently some girl... Who had worked for them for so long. She's a photographer or something, Yeah, right? so there's a couple that works for Zach, okay. and one of them's, like, the cameraman, and then she's the still photographer, mm-hmm. so she'll take still shots while they're while investigating. They're doing, yeah. And she, apparently when you go out there, women feel the most, like, a- affected by right. what's out there. Which is strange to me, because it was men that killed them right. but maybe it's just cuz women are more sensitive to that kind of maybe. thing maybe and there's been like a lot of voodoo so who knows what's all out there oh there's you know? all kinds of satanic crap out there and so she was affected by this and she's like look i got i got to leave i got to leave and then i guess it still affects her to this day and she ended up just quitting the show after that and she had been there for years yeah that's so crazy and <clears throat> and she swears that she, she's still affected by whatever was out there when we went I love you, Katie, but you're a chicken butt. I am. So we went. It was right there before. There were snakes and spiders. Okay. Listen. I even got a video and of a freaking snake. sandals too, which is silly. You should have worn like closed-toed shoes at the very least. Okay. Well, it's Texas and it's hot. It is. It was very hot. And I was not dressed and nicely. And I wasn't, I wasn't expecting us to go off trail like we did. Oh, I fully was. I was expecting to go further off trail than we did, but we reined it in a little. 
Anyways, so she she did not want to go at night, which I was wanting to go and like chill, like bring some chairs and post up and hang out for a little bit, see what was going to happen. No, we went right. It was still fun. We went right before um, the sunset. So like, you know, the sun was shining through all the pretty trees. And while it was mm-hmm. hot, it wasn't like I want to suffocate in the heat hot. Yeah. And I brought off so we wouldn't die of mosquito yeah, bites. we didn't get completely eaten. I did get quite a few bites, but not as many as I probably would have. But I don't feel like we experienced any, at least personally, I didn't experience any negative feelings there. I mean, it was just obviously the, you know, the pentagram and mm-hmm. stuff that they're putting out there that's being stupid. They're being satanic dummies. But that's kind of disturbing and... Just the penises everywhere. (laughs) You know, I felt insulted more than... Yeah. And not necessarily insulted for myself, but just for the history. Because it almost feels like you walk back in time when you go there. You know, because it's its own secluded little area. Even though you're right. I mean, Denton's a big city. It's huge. And it's not a remote location or anything. But this feels like its own little world. And Mm -hmm. this little... I don't know. It's very hard to describe until you go there. Yeah. Because when you're in that area, it feels like you're out in the country until you hear Mm -hmm. the cars drive by. Yeah. Because it's like right by a highway. I never felt anything threatening or anything. And it is a very interesting place to go check out for all my little local bees. Y'all can go and... Let us know how it goes. Yeah, and post, share, share things with us and stuff. I have a couple more things. Um, the reports spoke of a low growl that could be heard in the ears of women and lantern lights that could sometimes be seen hanging low to the ground. And one person said that after he and his friend heard the voice, he ran off the bridge while his friend stayed. And then he reportedly watched his friend get dragged toward the railing of the bridge and flipped into the water below. Oh, and yeah. that water is disgusting. Oh, so it's so gross. If, just, you, watch, if you see terrifying. the video. And uh, okay, so when we went, there was the jet ski people that came by. And <laughs> and it had one of those like squirter tails on yeah, the back. Yeah, you know how it like shoots the water up? And they were shooting. There was people on, on that bridge. bridge and, and they were shooting the nasty, nasty green murky water. Like there's literally like it's thick water like it's not like you cannot see through it at all even in the shallow parts green it's green murky slimy still water mosquito infested snake infested yes and they're shooting and i think the kids were up there if i remember i know some of them at one point where they were there for a photo shoot i don't remember if that was them or if it was but there was people kids up there and stuff and i'm like oh that's disgusting and then one of them was like hitting on katie (laughs) As he drove by. Oh, that was when we went up and he like gave me like the, what's like, up hey, girl? girl? And I was Can like, I get no. your number? I just like literally just turned around and I was like, okay, <laughs> I married you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, yeah, so that was fun. Yeah. Good, good time. Now we can officially say we've done yes. this story, even though I Not feel episode one, episode 35. 35. <laughs> that is... <laughs> But yeah, if you want to go watch our video, it's it's not super long, but it's funny. And we're going to really, really, really try to do more video things. I'm looking at you, Katie. And it's this, and I know, bear with us. It's all about, I know, it's all about timing and our schedules. And I've been working more lately than I was working. And Mm -hmm. now, anyways, but we're, we're going to, we're, it's going to happen somehow, someday. So So share with your friends, you know, even if like you don't think they might like us, like just like share us and thank you for the ones that have. 
And thank you for everyone that's been supporting us. And if you would like, like I said, go. Hold on. I'm going to interrupt you one second because something just popped in my head. Speaking of supporting, because this person does support us a whole lot. And we are very thankful. And she did something really exciting this week. So I just want to shout out to our friend Kendra. Oh, Kendra. Kendra. Yes. And she went, I can't remember the exact name of it, but she went to the um, American Ninja Warrior Finals or whatever. Yeah, she's trying to make it to the actual like Ninja Warrior like show. Yeah. And she she did really good. She made it to the finals in Las Vegas. She didn't make it to the to the actual top 15 but she did go out there and try and, and she did gave it her all. so good and we are so proud of you and just just to get out there and do that by it's you know alone that's mm-hmm. insane and it takes so much strength and just i could never do that you know mm-hmm. and and she's also i think if i remember correctly she's coaching for like little ninja warriors oh cute i didn't see yeah, that i think she got certified to do i can't remember exactly but something she's teaching it now so that's pretty cool and i just I think you're doing awesome things, girl, and we're watching you and we're rooting for you and yeah, we support you and thank you for supporting us. And y'all go check her out. She's the sober ninja all across, you know, social Socials. media. You she know, has a TikTok. TikTok she's, she's got funny. funny, 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 funny TikToks. One day maybe we can be funny like her. <laughs> One day maybe we can do like a a collaboration. You maybe. know, yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, Anyways, go check her out. Yeah, go do that. Support her. She's an awesome girl. She's got an incredible story and i know we've talked about her several times but just go go check her out yeah but yeah thank you everyone and if you want to go follow our socials you can follow us on instagram at literally disturb podcast and you can follow us on twitter at literally Pod. and if you or somebody that you know has a personal or true crime story that you just want to email to us you can email it to us at <laughs> literally disturb podcast at gmail.com <laughs> And like I've said before, go support our Patreon because we're poor. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, but really. Bye. (laughs) Oh, we needed to let Sophie do her story. Oh, yeah. Okay, here, Sophie, do your story real quick. (laughs) All right, Sophie, what story do you have for us this week? I have the champ. The champ. Yes. Never heard of that. Is it a cryptid? Uh, yeah. Interesting. Okay. It's in the cryptid list. Okay. Well, All right. Let's, let's hear about it. In American folklore, Champ or Champy is the name of a lake monster said to live in Lake Champlain. A 125-mile long body of fresh water shared by the New York and Vermont with a portion of extending into Quebec. The legend of the monster is considered to draw for tourism in the Burlington, Vermont, and Plattsburgh, New York areas. Over the years, there have been 300 reported sightings of Champ. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. French cartographer Samuel D. Champlain, the founder of Quebec and the lake's namesake, is often claimed to be the first European to have sighted Champ in 1609. Wow, that's a long time ago. Yes. However, this legend dates back to a fake quote published in the September 1970 issue of Vermont Life. In the Vermont Life article, Champlain is alleged to have been documented a 20-foot serpent thick as a barrel and head like a horse. Okay. This quote has often been repeated, and it, but is in fact made up. Champlain did document large fish. Okay. Here is also a great abundance of fish and many varieties along, uh, among others. One called the Savages of the Country, Ofuru, which varies in length, the largest being, as the people told me, 8 to 10 feet long. 
Wow, that's that's very long. I saw some five feet long, which were as large as my thigh. What? I don't, yeah. Five feet long as large as your thigh. That's, I'm five foot four. How is that? I saw some five feet long, which were as large as my thigh. Is this a quote from somebody? Yes. Uh, that's a big ass thigh then. (laughs) I don't know. Okay. 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 The head being as big as my two fists. Um, okay. (laughs) With a snout two feet and a half long. I'm so confused at these measurements, but okay. (laughs) Keep going. And a double row of sharp, dangerous teeth. So dangerous. So dangerous. Okay. Its body is in shape very much that is like a of a pike. Um all right. I don't know what a pike is. Um it is a um it's a fish. All right. But it is armed with scales so strong and its poniard cannot be cannot pierce them. All right. Its color is silver gray. Is that it? That's all the information I could find on it. Interesting. Yeah. A little champy. Mm-hmm. Some weird-ass measurements and somebody <laughs> has a big-ass thigh. <laughs> well, thank you, Sophie, for that. Uh, you're, you're welcome. Okay, bye. Bye.